right. Thank you for praying for us while we were away. We prayed for you as well, and are glad to be back. Um, no, no other church I'd rather be at than here, and um, thankful for the opportunity to spend some time with some family. But but glad to be back. Uh, this morning we want to continue our study, actually finish up our study on how to study the Bible. And so before we do that, let's pray and and uh, ask God to help us. Father, thank you for this time that we can uh, celebrate the resurrection of our Jesus, uh, of our Savior once again. He he resurrected on the first day of the week, and so that's why we meet this day. Or it's also a day in which we um, celebrate a new year, an, an opportunity for um, uh, new focus, new uh, commitment, uh, new strength. Lord, we we uh, we like to have these times to kind of wipe the slate clean and start back over again, uh, make some new commitments and um, and seek to please you and and work for you better than we did last year. So we pray that you'd help us in that. Thank you for the opportunity to study study your word, and um, thank you for this building in which we can meet. And uh, thank you that the heat is now working, and we pray that you'd help us as we we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the insert there inside of your handout, we will be, I'm probably just going to cover it briefly at the end. Hopefully we have time to just work through it briefly, but, but if not, I would highly recommend that you read that because what I have to say here today is, is a little bit difficult to understand, uh, particularly um, because what we're working with is is applying things that that, again, were written in a culture different than ours, uh, a place 5,000 miles away from us, and time, you know, between 4,000 and 2,000 years ago. So we have really 4,500 years ago and 2,000 years ago. So we really have a huge span uh, of time and a, a huge gulf that's, that is between the words of Scripture and its application and where we are today. So um, let me just get into the the study, and, and I'll show you what I mean by that. Um, so, in order for us to get to this spot where we want to be, which is to apply the Scriptures, because we would be foolish to just hear the words of Scripture, right? Um, the, the, the foolish man only hears what God has to say and doesn't do anything about it. The wise man, the one who builds his house on the rock, and the, and the comparison is that he hears the Word and he puts it into practice, right? He does it. That's Jesus' Uh, parable there in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. So, um, or as James teaches us, you know, we want to be not only hearers of the word, but what, but doers also. So we we do want to get to the past the academic part, right? We don't want to just fill up with biblical knowledge because actually filling up with knowledge just for the sake of knowledge actually puffs up. It it causes us to be proud. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter ten. So. Um, or is it First Corinthians? I'm not sure, but but anyway, um, we we have to move beyond that. And in order to do that, we first need to understand what he's saying. We need to understand what each what each author is saying. So that's where we start with observation. That's kind of the the high level, thirty thousand foot view, where we're kind of looking down, looking at a broad scope of things. What are all the various things that are going on in this? And then we kind of dig into the clues. Okay, to change analogies. To kind of, we, we dig down below the surface 
um, we're, we're doing more of the investigative work where we're asking questions of each part of the CSI kind of work, the detective work where we're, we're finding out what the blood samples point to and, and, and that's the dissection part where we're, we're asking questions of the text. Now, what, how does this fit within what the author's trying to say in the rest of the book? Or how does this fit in the larger context of, of the whole Bible? And um, so that's dissection. We talked about that. Uh, then the last time we were together, we started on application. That's actually taking what we have. It's, it's putting use to it. That's actually what a application means. It means to put use to something. So it's taking some principle and putting it into practice. But the problem for us is, as I mentioned a couple times, um, we often have one applicational principle, which is the Scripture says this, so I must do this. The Scripture says this, so I must do this. And the problem with that is because the Scriptures are written for a different audience. Uh, for I mean, part, part of it is written directly to us, but, but it's written for a specific people group. We were not the original readers of the text. Okay, there, there were people that these letters were written to. It was in a different culture and so on. We have to be careful about using that principle because there are some commands that, we simply, uh, that are simply not for us. Right? We talked about that last time. So here's the first four that we looked at um, there on the front of your handout. Application does not always perform what the author commanded, but it always puts to use what the author intended. So all Scripture is in, inspired by God and is profitable. All Scripture. So... That means even though there may be a command to do something for an Old Testament reader, he must do something. He must go and make a sacrifice, for example. That doesn't mean that we do it, but we can still put an application. We can still draw an application for it, and we should. Right? The reason we should is because all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Number two, all applications must apply interpretations. So we can't... This is. This is that one point that I kept driving home trying to two weeks ago, which was we can't move from observation to application. So we can't move from our Bible reading directly to application before we do some interpretation. Now, that doesn't mean we have to get into some deep study and you know put a huge graph and sentence diagrams or pull out all of our commentaries before we can make, make application. Otherwise, why read the Bible? But there should be some instant interpretation that should be going on and um, we get better that as the, with that as we, we, uh, we continue to hear preaching and, and read for ourselves. Number three, if it cannot be interpreted, then it cannot be applied. Again, we can't skip from observation to application. Number four, never change an author's intent because of what is going on in the culture. So we might see something you know, and, and try to make the Scriptures relevant, but we want to just let the Scriptures speak for themselves. That's why I think... Ex- Expositional preaching is the best kind of preaching, the most helpful kind. It takes the point of the text and makes it the point of the sermon. So we're not saying, here's an idea that I have, now let's go find what the Scriptures say about it. That's not necessarily a bad thing, as long as we're doing good interpretation. But instead, what we're doing is, here's the text, what does the text say? Right? What does the text mean? Now that I know what it says and what it means, how can I apply that to my life? All right, let's get into number five. Any questions on those first four? Number five, claim promises, but not someone else's promises. Claim promises, but not someone else's promises. And this is probably the most difficult of of the ones that we're going to look at today. Um, 
number six kind of goes along with it, but claim promises with someone, not someone else's promises. So again, the scriptures were written for a different audience and a different initial audience. And so these promises that are made in here are often made to other people. So just remember that when you're reading the scriptures, you're reading someone else's mail. Right? And, and so again, we might want to just immediately apply that to us. But in some cases, there are promises that are not made for us. Okay, and here's where I'm going to say something a little bit controversial, but and the reason it's controversial is because we've heard lots of people say this, and this is a good verse to cling to. Second Chronicles 7.14, and we can almost all quote it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and, then, uh, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their sin I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, who who made that promise, first of all? God. To whom did He make the promise? Israel. Okay. So now, if we automatically take that and say, you know, we live in China or Iran, and we try to apply that to ourselves, then we... We we're waiting on God to do something when we forgive or when when we uh, repent and so on. But this promise was made for Israel, and we know that because we can just look at the context. You can just read the story. Promise made to Jews and and specifically about their promised land. Right? It was about this promise that had gone all the way back to to uh, Abraham, Genesis chapter twelve, that God would give them this land and that it would be a prosperous land. Now, the danger for us is whatever country we live in is to try to apply that to us and see all the problems that are going on. Is because, And there might be some application there. okay? But we can't claim this promise that wasn't made to us. And there's a difference between claiming the promise and applying the promise. Uh, remember, it's kind of like the commands right? that we talked about last time, which is someone, someone has a command about a sacrifice... They need to obey that. We don't. In fact, we shouldn't obey that uh, because our sacrifice, it would be like we're adding to the sacrifice of Christ. That doesn't make sense. So, in the same way, there are promises made to Old Testament readers and to New Testament initial readers, and some of those promises are not for us. And I would suggest that this is, is one of them. Um, God didn't never promise that He would heal America. Um, at least He didn't it to us. So, so we just have to be careful about how we use that, that promise. Now, that doesn't mean we should never quote that verse. It doesn't mean we should never try to apply that verse because I think there are some larger principles that we can learn from that, right? Uh, that, that God generally does respond to individuals and to people groups when they repent, right? And so we, we wouldn't be surprised if God healed our land, but, but we shouldn't expect that God will give us great agricultural prosperity because we've repented, it could actually make things worse for us because we've repented as far as monetarily because our ultimate uh, hope is in Him and not, not in those material things. Um, how about John 14:26, where Jesus promised the disciples that the Holy Spirit will help you to recall these things. Let me just turn there because uh, maybe it would be better if I quoted it. John fourteen twenty six. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So we like to take this verse and say, well, see, I don't, you know, I don't have to worry when I'm going to talk to my neighbor, when I'm going to talk to my un, unsaved friend, um, because the Holy Spirit's going to re- help me remember all things. Well, no, that's actually designed for the disciples. Now, there's definitely some application there, but this is not a promise for, for you and me. We are not the disciples. Um, so, so we we got to be careful about just taking certain passages and and forcing them uh, to apply to our specific set of circumstances until we first understand them. And and maybe the application for that one is, you know, the Holy Spirit uh, works within the mind of people to help them to recall things, and he he worked in that way specifically in the disciples. What kind of promises does God have for me? That if that if I will respond properly, maybe you know, uh, like First Corinthians two twelve, the same Holy Spirit who brought remembrance to the apostles' minds is the same Holy Spirit will help illumine my mind. Right? He gives significance. He helps me to see the significance of what what is is written in the scriptures. Um, you know, same thing for the Second Chronicles seven fourteen one. You know, um, we have a promise that God will, when we humble ourselves and seek Him and turn from our sins, that, that God will restore fellowship with us. First John chapter 1, right? If we confess our sins, He's faithful. So, so there's definitely application we can draw from them, but we've got to be careful about grabbing onto and holding onto promises that don't belong to us. Uh, we need to instead look at promises that are given to all believers. These are the promises that, that we should hold on to. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, for example, I didn't write that one on there, but but um, says that, uh, that I will never leave you or forsake you. Or Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, uh, seems to be implied that it's meant for more than the disciples, right? Because Jesus says to them, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and when he says that, he says... Um, He's talking about the end of the age, not just the end of their lives. When they pass on, it seems like all of his disciples are included in that. That's why we take that as his great commission. We follow those commands and we claim that promise that I am going to be with you for the whole time. Same thing in Hebrews 13. I, I hold strongly to those. John 1.12, right? John 1.11, uh, there he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him to them, he gave the privilege, the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Okay, uh, again, we need to understand the, the the meaning of that before we can apply it. And it seems to me that 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 is a that is meant for more than just um, Jesus' initial audience. There, that's meant for us as well. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners. There's a principle there that, that is timeless. That works for all, all believers of all time. And uh, then these other ones as well. Okay, Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing. And so on. Alright, so, how do we know which ones you know, we're supposed to apply and which ones we're not? Or we're supposed to apply all of them, really, because all Scripture is profitable. How do we know which promises belong to us and which ones don't? And that's what this uh, handout's for, which I hope we'll have time to get to. Do you have any questions on that? hope I'll answer some more of your questions um, as we get to that other sheet. But All right, let me keep moving. 
and um, and then uh, see where we where we go. Number six, we should keep the commands given to all believers of this present age. So we should keep the commands given to all believers of this present age. Um, so the same thing that's true for promises is also true for commands. Many commands given to those in the earlier ages have been repealed. So how many of the Ten Commandments are we to obey? Right. So remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Number four, um, you know, we, we like to... We like to change that, and I say we, I just mean we in our Christian circles like to say, well, you know, today's the Sabbath. Well, no, it's not, because Sabbath means Saturday. So, it's not Saturday. Um, if any of you worked at all yesterday, um, if you gathered some wood, um, if you did anything, if you traveled away from your house farther than a couple miles, then you disobeyed the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. Okay, so, um, that's not a commandment for us. In fact, it doesn't work for us even if we change it to Sunday. Right, because we've probably traveled farther than a couple of miles even today. And we, we're probably going to prepare our own food. Um, we're not going to lunch, but maybe for dinner you might. But, but whatever the case, we keep nine of the ten commandments. Again, how do we know which ones? And that's what this handout, I think, hopefully will help, will help with. All right, so we, we looked last time at Leviticus 19.18. Right, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that makes sense. We can obey that one. That's something that's repeated in the New Testament. But what about Leviticus 19:19? 19, 19, you shall not wear a garment about uh, where two kinds of material are mixed together. So um, that's not a commandment that's meant for us. So how about let's stick to the ones that that were given to us in this age, in the church age. So an example is First um, Samuel 15:3. Where God told Saul to destroy all the Amalekites, that's not a commandment that was meant to be kept by us. It's not even a commandment that was meant to be kept by the rest of Israel. It was meant, it was directly directed at Saul only. And uh, so we we need to take the commands and the promises that were that were given to us in our age, hold on to them tightly, and and um, and cling to them, follow them, and uh, and then we have to understand the other ones. We can't just dis- disregard all the other ones in the Old Testament and go, well, you know, those promises, those are all for them. We can just kind of cut out the first two-thirds of our Bible because it's not really for us. Um, that's not the point. But we do need to be careful on making application without understanding it first. Number seven, all examples must be applied, but never let an example negate a command. Negate a command. Okay, an example, a, a command is easy to apply, right? Especially if we know it's a command for us. Um, husbands, love your wives. Okay, if you're a husband, then that's an easy command for you to obey, or at least it's easy concept for you to get. It might be a difficult command to obey. But examples are harder. Um, and so when the Bible gives a command, it, it, we just obey it. Um, but, but examples are, are different. Some examples are meant to be followed and some are not. And the answer depends on what the passage means, right? What, what's the context? What's going on in the context? Even in the New Testament, we have to understand the author's meaning and intention. 
So, for example, the author of Genesis gave us an account of Abraham's obedience in chapters 12 and 22, and it would seem that we should learn from that, that we should learn from Abraham's obedience. After all, the Old Testament was written for our learning. It was written so that we would see examples of what, how to live and how not to live. But in this case, Abraham heard God's promise and he obeyed, right? And he followed after God even though he didn't know where he was going. There was lots of application we can make from that. But that doesn't mean we always follow Abraham's example because there are two other occasions where he lies about his wife saying that she was his sister in order to avoid um, some opposition and even put her into a, a, um, an immoral position, basically, right? And, um, and so we have to be careful that we don't just take every example and say, well, there's an example, I need to follow it. Obviously, that's a, a really bizarre um, far out one, but there's some that are a little bit more nuanced that that just aren't as clear. Um, so for an example, we need to read the narrative, the parable, the poem, whatever part of Scripture we're reading and find out what the author intends. What's he trying to get at? And, and this is part of the, that dissection process or the observation process as well, that, which is, you know, when you get to a narrative, what's the conflict and resolution? What's the, what's the author trying to drive at? When you're in a prose section... Um, what's the commands that are given? What are the repeated words and phrases? And that will help us to determine whether we should follow this example or not. With the command, it's usually clear um, whether we should follow it or not. And um, so the point here is that a command must take precedent over example because the interpretation of the command is clearer. And, and so that's why we, we put so much, so much emphasis on the text. Um, so in 2 Kings chapter 10 verses 18 and 19 Jehu summoned the prophets, priests and worshippers of Baal and he told them they asked sacrifice for Baal but he lied to them about what he, what he was doing right? He, wasn't, he didn't really have a sacrifice for them he was actually going to sacrifice them <laughs> he was going to kill them all um, and so he calls them together and um, and, and so what we learn from this is that Jehu concealed the fact that he planned to kill all the Baal worshippers. And the author seems to be telling us that every believer should take a, a severe stand against idol worship and other forms of idolatry. But it doesn't mean we need to go out and kill pagan worshippers, right? Or any idol worshippers in the world. That's not what God's calling us to do. But how might we apply that passage? If the meaning is... That, that we should take a stand against idolatry like Jehu did, how might we apply that today? Okay. So, someone, someone, um, someone um, is a Mormon and they're trying to get you to, to say that Mormonism and Christianity is the same thing. You know, we're, we're willing to take a stand. Right or Jehovah's Witness, whatever it is, you know th- these are idols that they've set up. This is not the same God that I worship. The God that I worship is the God of the Bible, and what you're saying about Him is not true, because God came in human flesh. His name is Jesus, and and He is the Son of God. He's not just another man. He's not just a great teacher. He's much more than that. He's the Savior of the world. He is the God Man. So that might be what it looks like for us. But how about in India or something, or or Africa? You know, where they actually have idols that are being made and sold 
we might say, well, I'm not going to bring one of those into my house. I'm not going to allow that to be in my house. I'm going to remove anything that would, would um, look like that sort of thing. Um, so that, that may be how, we, uh, how, how they would apply that. But still, the same principle is true, which is that Jehu stood against, took a stand against idolatry, and we're going to apply that in different ways. Jonathan? Yeah, that's a, that's a possible um, way to apply it as well. Number eight, uh, there's only one correct interpretation, but there are many correct applications. And this kind of goes along with what I just got finished talking about. Um, there's one interpretation. The author only had one meaning. So we can't say, well, this is what the text means for me. We can't say that uh, because there is no for me. It's what does the text mean to the original author? Then, how does it apply to me? That's different. So remember that, that little, um, that little um, picture that I had last, on the last handout? It was one interpretation, uh, multiple applications, and kind of was spread out. We could, we could have all sorts of applications, just like we did the Jehu one, right? With India, it's going to be different from how we apply it than, than how they might. But the same principle is true. The same interpretation is True. The same way that we study the scriptures should be the same way that somebody in India or Africa studies it. Um, so, the similar example in Genesis 35 too. I'm not going to um, to rehash that, but but when it comes to interpretation, okay, this is kind of taking a step back into the previous uh, from three weeks ago. If you and I come up with different interpretations different meanings of what the text is, then, either, then one of three things is possible. Either you and I, you are right and I am wrong, I am right, you are wrong, or we're both wrong. Okay? We can't both be right if we have two different interpretations of the text. Now, when I say different, I mean competing. You know, if, if my interpretation of the text says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the King of Kings, and someone else comes along and says... Jesus is not the Christ, okay? He's not the Son of God, and He's not the King of Kings. Those are competing interpretations, even though they're looking at the same text. So one of us is either one of us is right, or we're both wrong. We can't both be right because we're actually contradicting one another. And obviously, we know from Scripture that that um, Jesus is the King, so that would be the right interpretation. So. Uh, all right. So, any questions on that? Multiple interpretation. Uh, one, excuse me. Single interpretation, multiple applications. Uh, this is called the the single meaning of scripture. Single meaning of scripture. So, what you're going to find in um, a lot of theological writings is this phrase, this Latin phrase called "sensus plenier," which means double meaning. So they say, well, you know, like an Old Testament reader, or even even the Old Testament author. When he was writing it, he had this meaning, but he didn't actually know that until later that it actually had this meaning. So, so basically now we have to do some kind of allegorical interpretation of the Scripture 
and say, well, here's one meaning of the Scripture, but you know, maybe we're missing something. We need to add, find another meaning later. No, the, the New Testament authors never went back and changed meaning of any of the texts. They never, the, all they did was apply it in different ways. So when the Old Testament author said that there's a promised Redeemer coming, uh, the New Testament author didn't say, no, he's not. And they didn't change what that meant. All they did was add more detail to it. Now we know that this promised Redeemer is Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? And he's actually going to die. And we know that because of Isaiah 53, that, that he would be the suffering servant and so on. Number nine, application applies, but does not necessarily perform personal commands. Okay, so again, we want to apply all of Scripture, even chronology. There's some application that we can make from that. But, it, but we don't necessarily... Um, and, and we want to apply all commands, but not necessarily perform those. So, how do we know that we should practice head covering, 1 Corinthians 11, male leadership, 1 Timothy 2, monogamous, heterosexual marriage, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 3, but not necessarily wear sandals, Acts 7, wear robes, dress and eat like John the Baptist, Matthew 3, greet one another literally with a holy kiss, 1 Corinthians 16 and others. How do we know which ones of those commands that we apply specifically uh, in, in the exact way that it was stated? And the answer comes, as always, in the context, in the author's intention. What, what did he mean uh, with those commands? Is the author simply mentioning a personal note? You know, when he said, Timothy, have a little bit of wine for your stomach. You know, I know you get sick a little bit, so make sure you take some of that. Was, was that something that he meant to be applied to all people of all time? Um, so th those are the kind of questions that we need to be asking. All Scripture must be applied, and that includes commands given to other people, but those commands are not necessarily going to be applied in the same way that that individual would have applied it. And usually the uh, a helpful question might be, does the author make a moral or theological case for it. So when he makes a command, usually what he's doing is he's building on it, isn't he? And this is kind of what we're seeing in, in the epistles. Uh, we're going through 1 Corinthians right now and starting up on 1 Timothy this afternoon. Um, and these, these, these commands that are given, often the ones that are meant to be timeless and kept by us continually are the ones that are the arguments that are built upon it. There's a theological case. Here's why you need to do this. Here's why you need to be filled with the Spirit, right? Ephesians chapter 5. Um, so here's some examples here on your handout number one greet one another with a holy kiss uh, I've preached through these passages before 1 Thessalonians 5 Romans 16 and the interpretation is that believers were to do this as an expression of love and so the application for us is we need to show some kind of love for one another in, when we greet people and we ought to greet one another right in some way, not necessarily with a kiss. Maybe for us it's a hug or a handshake, um, but, but that seems to fit with, with, um, with what we're doing in our culture. Now, you go down to Uruguay, and it will be with an actual kiss on the cheek. That's the way that they greet one another, and that's completely appropriate. Um, number two, greet Philologus and Julia Nereus and his sister. Um, the 
interpretation was that Paul wanted the Romans to, to greet these people whom he loved, people that Paul knew. And, and so maybe for us, the application might be that we should send personal greetings to people so that they know that we're interested in them as individuals. You know, um, it's kind of falling out of practice, I think, a little bit that when we, we, we go to some place um, or when we're intending to go someplace, maybe someone says, hey, send my greetings with them. That actually happened when we were on this last trip. Um, you know, we were going to see my, my, my in-laws and, and Mike, Mike said, make sure that you tell your in-laws hi for me. You know, it's, it's just a, sounds kind of old-fashioned, but, but that's actually something that, that has some biblical roots in it, doesn't it? That, that we should send greetings. The reason I say it's kind of falling out of practice is because some people respond by saying, well, you could, have, you could have done that so easily just by picking up the phone or you could have done that by you know, chatting with me on Facebook or whatever. It's so easy to connect with people now that we feel like, well, you know, sending my greetings with somebody. Anyway, that's a different sermon. Number three, Jesus gave orders to the formerly deaf man not to tell anybody about who he was. Now, when you read through the Gospels, this is always a peculiar thing. Like, why would Jesus tell people, the leper, you know, he heals the leper, don't tell anybody about who I am. Why? I mean, and how do we apply that? Well, first, we need to understand why. Uh, Jesus was trying to minimize the spread of his ministry at that time so that he could finish out what he accomplished to do. And he, he came to, to teach. He wanted to, to teach people who he was and what, what he was about. So before he could get to the point where they um, tried to make him Messiah and actually, you know, ended up that, that he died, uh, he had to teach them. So, so in, in these early miracles, what you're going to find him saying is, don't tell anybody about this. Later on in his life, um, toward, towards his death, he doesn't say that anymore. Um, so that's not an application for us to, okay, I guess I don't have to tell anybody about Jesus. That's not, that wasn't meant for us. Again, we're reading someone else's um, mail. Actually, in that case, it's just another story um, that's in the Scriptures. But how might we apply that? Well, we should do what Christ wants to do. We need to do what's in keeping with His mission. At that time, His mission was just keep this circle kind of small right now because I want to make sure these disciples understand. Okay, now we want to do something with this in keeping with, our mission, with His mission. So how can we apply that today? Well, what is Jesus' mission for us today? And, and we could explore lots of applications for that. Number 10, application must be aware of what is going on in our lives. This is the hardest part about application is that we need to understand what's going on in our culture. We need to understand what's going on in our hearts. And the Scriptures help to do that. The Holy Spirit is, is speaking to us. Um, but, but if we don't understand what's going on in our, our lives, sometimes it's hard to see where, how the Scriptures can, can even speak to that. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, Paul said to Timothy, Pay close attention to yourself, and to your teaching. And by doing so, you will save both yourself and those who listen. And um, so, notice the order there. Pay close attention first to yourself and then to your teaching. And, and so, maybe it would be helpful for us to just think about ourselves. Now, I'm not one who, who thinks that we need to understand ourselves first before we can understand God. It's the opposite is true. We need to understand who God is before we can understand ourselves. But uh, when we apply scriptures, we can't just ignore who we are or what's going on in our lives. For example, our, the things that we're good at. 
You know, the things that we're excelling at. What, what places has God gifted me? What places have I improved in this last year, for example? Right? How, how has God made me grow spiritually? Th- that will be helpful as we're going to Scripture and we start to see some of these promises or, or, um, or these uh, encouragements that come from the Scripture that God is actually working in me. But if we don't see any of those things that's going on in our lives that we actually are taking, even if they are small steps, we're taking steps towards greater spiritual growth, then, then we can't really apply that encouragement to ourselves because we're constantly down ourselves. Or the, the converse is also true. We also need to recognize our, the pitfalls that we're constantly, you know, uh, we're, we're constantly not avoiding, constantly falling into. Uh, what are those? Because then if we understand what those are, you know, I, I really have this problem with when I come to Scripture, now I, as I understand the meaning, I can apply it to those specific situations. It might be a good thing to do even at the beginning of this year to just think about, okay, what, what three ways is God, um, has God really shown Himself to be strong in my life? That is, that he is, he, He's gifted me in these areas. Maybe it's giving or maybe it's serving or, or whatever. And then maybe think about the three greatest liabilities. Uh, what are the things that are holding me back? What are the, the weights that are so easily besetting me? You know, I'm supposed to be running a race here. I need to get rid of those things so that I can run well. Roman, or Hebrews chapter 12. What kind of things should I emphasize or change in order for Jesus to say, well done? All right, let's get to this uh, sheet, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is a this comes directly from Dr. Snowberger's um, seminary class on dispensationalism, and um, I don't know of a better, more helpful discussion. And I know some of this is a little thick, especially when you a little deep when you first read the first couple paragraphs. But if you if you get into it and just take some time on it, maybe just do one question a day. Um, I think it will really benefit you. Let's start on the back, actually, and just show you uh, how different the law is that we have. So here's an improper view at the top, that the law of Moses actually developed into the law of Christ. So God had this law that was designed for us, or designed for the Old Testament Israelites, and then that kind of morphed into this law of Christ. It's now kind of the pinnacle, the better law. That's not how it happened at all. It's the other way around. Look at, the, or not the other way around, but but actually, it's from the top down. It's it's at the bottom there, where God has this eternal law of how He desires for His people to live and worship Him, and He expressed it in one way in the Old Testament through the Mosaic Law, and He expressed it in another way that's very similar in the New Testament. Now, when I say similar, I mean there are some points of comparison, right? There are still some things that that connect. Remember how we summarized the whole law of Moses? How did we summarize it in two commands? How did Jesus summarize it? Love God and love your neighbor. Okay, love God and love your neighbor. Now, could we summarize the whole law of Christ in the same way? I, I would say yes. Why not? Right? I mean, that we, we ultimately are about loving God. Now, the expression of that is going to be different. The way that you love God in the Old Testament is definitely by obeying his commands, but by bringing sacrifices, make sure that you're in good, make sure that you're in good fellowship with him. You know, treating other people well. The New Testament is going to look a little bit different, but still same, same sorts of principles apply. 
say so there's some connection, but we don't want to think that the law of Moses kind of morphed into the law of Christ. So which ones of these commands in the law of Moses actually apply to us? How do we know? And, um, and that's, what, uh, that's where this paper is going. So let's skip the first couple paragraphs and move down to number one. Some questions that we can ask. Is the principle part of the natural created order? So he says there seems to be a priority placed in the revelation given at creation, specific ground rules for the perpetuation of the creation that extended to all dispensations. So uh, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, eat vegetation, cultivate the earth. Some take the form of principles that were to be inferred, capital punishment, that female headship is a violation of created order, homosexuality being unnatural. So here's something we can go to the Old Testament. We don't have to just ignore all the Old Testament commands or examples. Say those aren't for me. Instead, are these a part of the created order? That God made uh, male and female. And that He made uh, the, the marriage relationship to be male and female. See, that's, that's, back, even that's what Paul does, isn't it? When he says this is what marriage is, it's, it's back to the creation. He goes back to that creation account. Number two, is the principle commanded or practiced in multiple dispensations and specifically in our present dispensation? So do we have any texts of Scripture that show that this is a trans-dispensational? It crosses all the dispensations and specifically, is it practiced in our dispensation? And that, and that might be a reason why we need to, to obey it. In fact, it is a reason why we must obey it. So letter A there on the second page, some New Testament commands perpetuate identically revelation from previous dispensations. We talked about this. Nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament, so we know we need to obey those. Don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't um, have any idols before you, so on. Um, The summing up of our ethical standard, loving God, loving neighbor is the same. See, we talked about that. Therefore, we may assume that these are direct statements of the moral will of God. Remember that picture on the back, right? The eternal law of God. He must want us to love Him and love each other. So if it, if it, if it crosses dispensations, then, then we know that. Letter B, some Old Testament practices appear in our dispensation, but in an altered form. So a form of priesthood persists in the New Testament. Um, in the second bullet point under that, uh, Noah... And during the time of Noah, there's a requirement to submit to civil government. That seems to cross dispensations, right? Romans 13. Um, seems to be some eternal principles in view there. Let us see some commands and practices appear in other dispensations, but not in our own. Uh, for example, commands and practices uh, demonstra- demonstrably fulfilled in Christ, but have no direct application today. Animal sacrifices, there's no application, or there's no... Um, direct application. There is indirect application, but there's no direct application, meaning we don't take any of our animals and go sacrifice them before a priest. Sabbath observance, same same idea. The second category is commands and practices demonstrably related to dispensational structures, but have no direct New Testament application. So the second one there, circumcision. Uh, the third one there, tithing. Um, and then let, number three, Commands, practices that further explicate clear creation motifs and otherwise trans-dispensational moral principles should probably be regarded as 
equally trans-dispensational trans if they are not reiterated uh, in the present dispensation. So, for example, there's no prohibition in the New Testament against incest. There's no prohibition, direct prohibition against bestiality. But there are prohibitions in the Old Testament. How do we know whether that's part of the created order or not? Well, it seems to be that the Old Testament kind of um, uh, filled out what this prohibition in the New Testament was, which was do not commit any form of, form, any form of fornication. And now we have specific examples of that in the Old Testament. Premarital sex, sex also is not mentioned in the New Testament, but it's clearly mentioned in the Old Testament and it seems to be, not seems to be, it is a form of, of uh, fornication that is prohibited in the New Testament. Abortion, same thing. Number four, or letter uh, Roman numeral four, commands demonstrably tied to transient cultural practices have no direct application, but the underlying moral principles persist. So, the injunction against boiling a kid in its mother's milk seems to be a forgotten pagan practice, he says. Um, so it's gone with the Mosaic Code, but the need for the believer to distance himself from idolatry remains. And then the injunction against muzzling an ox, you know, um, as it treads out the grain, that's gone with the Mosaic Code, but the need to, to compensate people who are working um, is not, and so on. All right, so I know that's a lot to chew on, but that kind of fills out a little bit more of what I was trying to explain at the beginning, that not all, we're reading someone else's mail, so not all of the commands that are given are our commands. Not all the examples are meant for us to be obeyed. So we need to try to think through that, and I think this is a helpful way to do that. I'd be happy to, to talk with you more on that. Um, next week, we want to start a, a study through the, the entire Bible, do a survey of all of the books of the Bible, and we're actually going to take three weeks in Genesis, so we'll start with Genesis 1 and 2 next week, and, and I look forward to, to doing that with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word, and, and sometimes it can be perplexing, um, all the commands and, and the, uh, the examples and the stories, how, how do we apply them to our lives, and, and Lord, the easy thing for us would be to just move right to application without thinking about what they meant for the original audience, what the author intended, help us to, to be able to be willing to do the work um, on Sunday morning when we hear preaching, Sunday evening, Wednesday, and also when we're reading the scriptures ourselves throughout the week. Um, Lord, give us the tools to be able to do that, the mind uh, to be able to concentrate and then to be able to help others to, to do the same. We want to be faithful stewards of your word. We don't want to misuse your word. Um, we don't want to to, um, to just take key verses and, and use them as our club over someone else's head or, or as a way to, to bind our own conscience. We want to, uh, to follow you as, as you desire. And so help us to understand your word and apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.